Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax, audit, and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. The South Carolina Ports Authority, a major economic driver in South Carolina, supporting 187,000 jobs and nearly $53 billion in annual economic activity. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Besides its reputation as a historic monolithic money center, what exactly does the Federal Reserve do? Not to be overly fundamental, but how does it interact with banks and with businesses in the region? And besides just policy and business insiders, what is important to know and unpack about the Federal Reserve today? Welcome again to the most widely watched source of Carolina business, policy, and public affairs. For almost three decades now, seen across the Carolinas, in deconstructing the enigma that the Federal Reserve has been, there may be no better person than the Federal Reserve's new president, in large part because our guest is not a typical banker, a former McKinsey consultant, CFO, and risk officer. He joined the Richmond Fed at the end of 2017 and now picks up where his predecessor, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, left off in sitting on the Federal Open Market Committee, an influential body at the Federal Reserve Banks that includes the presidents who set monetary policy for the U.S. Central Bank. We will welcome, in just a moment, Thomas Barkin. Gratefully acknowledging support by Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, an executive profile featuring Thomas Barkin, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Welcome to our program. Tom Barkin, welcome to the Carolinas. Welcome to our, our discussion. Good to have you here. Great. I'm happy to be here, too. You know, President Barkin, let, let me ask you something. So you're very, it's very interesting, a non-traditional banker yeah. now heading up the Richmond's 5th District, or 5th District, Richmond Federal Reserve. Um, why do you think that the search committee offered you the job? Why do you think the Fed, the Richmond Fed hired you? You're, you're, oh. I wouldn't say you're a banker, per se. Well, I appreciate them hiring me, and so I, wouldn't, I would hate to presume uh, to know how they thought about it. Um, but I hope they thought that I bring a little something different to the room. Uh, we've got some of the greatest macroeconomists in the world. We've got policy people. We've got bankers. We don't really have anybody in the room who has spent 30 years, as I did, helping companies decide how to price or decide how to hire or decide mm -hmm. how to uh, grow. And so my hope and certainly my aspiration is to be a voice that understands businesses and how they work in the room. And if you believe in diversity of opinion, which is really how our systems set up, you'd believe that's somebody I'd want. Does, uh, do you feel handicapped that you don't have a formal economics degree or you weren't considered an economist? Do you feel empowered that you have a strategic thinking background in corporate America, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, 
Well, if you take seriously what we do, and I do, and if you're a competitive person, as I am, you want to show up in the room and have something to say. And I think just showing up and talking about how businesses think is not going to get you listened to as well as if you do that with some amount of economics perspective built into it. So I've hit the books hard. Uh, and I was named at the beginning of December. I read 7,000 pages over Christmas of contemporary macroeconomic thinking. And it's changed a lot since I was in college. Um, but, and I'm working with my economics team every day because I think if I'm going to have the kind of influence that you would hope I would, it'd be because I could put it in a language that speaks to businesses but also speaks to economists. So not just the crash course in economics and academics, Tom, but now that you've spent a lot of hours, a lot of time, a lot of driving, a lot of flying around the 5th District, what, what, what struck you? What surprised you most about this? Well, thanks for saying that. One of my aspirations when I started was not to represent Richmond but to represent the district, which goes from South Carolina through Maryland, including West Virginia. Uh, this is my 20th day in North Carolina and the eight days in the eight months that I've been here, and I've been 10 days in South Carolina, too. So I've been around and I've been talking to um, businesses, I've been talking to community organizations, I've been trying to understand uh, what's happening. The one thing that has struck me the most is rural versus urban in our geography. And it's probably something I should have understood even better before I started. Mm -hmm. But I was living in the world of companies, and now I'm living in the world of employers and employees. And there are massively different outcomes in our district and across the country, rural versus urban. Uh, employment. Uh, if you live in a city, mm -hmm. your odds of being employed are six, seven, eight points higher than they are if you're not. And that's the kind of thing, if we want to grow the economy, we have to work on. How do we bring more people off the sidelines into the workforce, particularly in our rural communities? You know, chambers of Commerce presidents and other economic developers in different markets will talk about that rural-urban divide. Uh, we've often asked the question, and I ask you the question, Tom, hi, so if, as you articulated it, it clearly from a, through an employment lens, but isn't, isn't anything, isn't the idea that uh, uh, an urban core and rural open land are different in nature anyway, and shouldn't we think a little differently about how we measure those? And what's important in a rural community uh, may not be that important in, in urban and vice versa. I'd be interested in learning more about what you're saying on that. The way I think about it is this. Um, our people want jobs, right? And, I, and so that's why I put the metric as employment. Yeah. I think folks want to work, prime age folks uh, want to work, students want to go to school retirees want to retire, but prime age people want to work. And so I ask myself the questions, you know, why don't we have more jobs in those places? And a lot of the uh, answer is pretty straightforward, right? There's a piece that jobs have left, right? Whether that be rural hospitals or old manufacturers, textiles, furniture, uh, whatever. Part is workforce development. Mm -hmm. Education really matters. And the rural communities on average are less educated than the urban communities. So those are things you can try to uh, work against. But I do think there's also something about how do we bring the jobs of the future into those places? Things like broadband, mm -hmm. right? And giving people access to the kind of tools they might need to get either the education or the opportunities that would help. So uh, if there were, there. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So no, if, there were, if there was universal broadband across the map, 100% coverage, would that be one meaningful change that would go to this? I do think it would help. Yeah. And you think about the amount that each of us uses the broadband uh, we have and the opportunities that could give for people who wanted to get educated, do online learning, 
right, to get educated. I think it's pretty interesting. And then I think a lot of the jobs of the future are going to get enabled by uh, broadband access to the tools they need. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason why um, in a technologically advanced society you have to live in the place where your job is. Uh, one of your jobs now is sitting on the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. Right. And that's uh, it's got to be pretty heady stuff to be in a room of people that are setting interest rates or, or suggesting interest rate moves up or down or different strategies, um, not just in general, but for the U.S. Central Bank. Right. W what has surprised you about that dialogue? Uh, well, it's humbling. I don't know if it's heady. It's pretty <laughs> humbling. And uh, um, I, I will remember the first time that a vote came around and after uh, Chairman Powell, um, I'm the first guy who votes because it's alphabetical, and uh, and it's a little corny, but I, I kind of had a, a wave of whatever you want to call it, pride, uh, fear. Um, it, it's a pretty humbling experience to try to set policy. So that's the first thing I'd start. Um, it's a pretty good debate. You've got uh, 16 people around the table right now. Every one of them lays out their point of view on what's happening in economic conditions in the country and in their districts. Uh, we then go around and talk about what we think policy ought to be. And these are not shy people. As I said earlier, these are some of the most talented macroeconomists, policymakers uh, in the world. And they're very divergent points of view. And so as a guy who walks in from one background, I don't feel as tied to a particular economic mm -hmm. theory as someone who'd been a professor, let's say, and had written about what the right answer is. So I'm a sponge. Uh, and then again, as I said earlier, I'm also trying to contribute. So you go around the table, you're trying to figure out which arguments make sense to you, mm -hmm. which arguments don't. Um, I'm in the world, every time I walk out of a meeting, I say, okay, here's the 10 things I really want to dig into over the next six weeks before the next meeting. Take tariffs and trade, right? That's obviously a discussion people are having. I've been out trying to talk to farmers, talking to uh, poultry processors, trying to understand mm -hmm. what's really happening out there. Because there's one thing to debate it in the room, it's another thing to really test it with what's happening in real life in the economy, and then bring back a perspective informed by that. Do you, uh, what, one of the things I remember about Federal Chairman, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan was his ability to look at the anecdotal evidence and almost place it in priority above the statistical evidence and the expected evidence and so on and so forth. Do you find when you're in those meetings that it's the small things that matter, and if it's not small things, what maybe atypical information would, would catch your eye. Right. Well, you're on something powerful, which is uh, the data is always delayed and always revised. Mm -hmm. So as a policymaker trying to make sense of the data, it's a very useful input. But if it doesn't fit what you're seeing in the real economy, you have to force yourself to ask some important questions. And that is how I, how I think about it. I look hard at the data, but also look hard at the conversations I'm having to try to test whether that's real uh, or not. So, you know, we totally do that. I don't think I would say, though, that the anecdotes trump the data. I'd say it's more the argument trumps the data. And so people are making very real arguments about the pathway going forward, right? We're learning from what's happening in the economy, and that implies a steeper path or a flatter path, right? Or a path that should be dependent mm -hmm. on a certain type of data versus another type of data. It's more that argument. And then you use the anecdotes to help uh, support that argument. That's how I think about it. So, uh, uh, and of course we know you cannot share proprietary information and I would never yeah. ask that. Please but, stop me if I try but, to do that. <laughs> okay. We know what happens there. Um, 
accommodative was dropped from yeah. uh, uh, Chairman Powell's language and dropped from the Fed guidance, which is in, in itself, I think, surprising that the Fed gives guidance worked even 15 and 20 years ago. They didn't. Um, when do we know it's not an account of, uh, accom accommodative interest rate any longer? And I'm not talking about language. I'm talking about when do we know that it's no longer accommodative? Well, I think that's the test we're going to have over the next uh, several quarters or you know, maybe even longer, which is uh, we've had our foot on the gas for a very long time, mm -hmm. right? And I think we've said in the context of a very strong economy, fiscal stimulus, um, strong consumer spending, strong business investment, then now's the perfect time to take our foot off the gas. But we're not really that interested in putting our foot on the brake, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're easing off the gas and then you're trying to get a feel, just as you would in a car, as to when you're gliding as opposed to either you know, pumping the pedal one way or the other. Um, we're gonna try to find it in the data. Um, do mm -hmm. we see inflation spiking or dropping? Do we see growth and jobs continuing to go at this very healthy pace or will you see them backing off? And you might have seen in the dot plot, some of the participants talk about maybe even being modestly restrictive. And I think, you know, not to speak for them, but you might argue to be modestly restrictive if you thought we're trying to find, you know, that perfect place. And you might go a step farther as you sort of try to find it. Mm -hmm. So we're, I, I think we're trying to find our way in the data. And as he said, in the, as the chairman said in his press conference the other day, I wouldn't take much from the removal of the language other than it's served its purpose. Mm -hmm which was really three years ago to tell people that don't worry about us starting to raise rates because we still think it's accommodative. Tom, do you think that the, the Fed, and you know, it's just such a broad uh, assumption, but do you think the Fed is breathing easier? Let me ask it this way. So three years ago in 2015, I remember we were all concerned, is there going to be enough yeah. inventory of interest rate increases to get us to a point where we can actually drop them? at some point, but now it's, it's a different game. So do you think the Fed is no longer whistling past the graveyard, but feels like, all right, we've got a tail on these interest rates. We've got, we've got a tool that's actually working. We feel better about X or Y. Yeah. Well, we feel very good about where the U.S. economy is right now. You've got 3%-ish growth forecasted by most forecasters for the year. You've got inflation right at our target of 2%. You've got unemployment as low as it's been since the 60s. So against our mandate, you know, we feel very good about it. And I'd, I'd also add, if you look at international economies, right, ours is much stronger than what you see in Europe and much stronger than what you see in Japan. And mm -hmm. we feel very good about that, too, that we'd be more than happy to see their economies stronger uh, as well. So I think uh, the darkest fears we might have had three or four years ago, you know, thankfully, we're no longer worried. We are central bankers, though, so now we're worried about other things, and that's just how we operate. We For are, instance? We're worried about whether the economy is going to overheat. At some point, will unemployment be so low that employers won't be able to find workers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're worried about whether uh, pressures from overheating might cause inflation well out of the line of our mandate. We always worry about shocks, you know, whether they be cyber shocks or Brexit shocks mm -hmm. or the kinds of things that have happened overseas in Argentina and Turkey. And so we've gone from worried about was, it, was there ever going to be enough gas to get the economy moving again to a place where the economy's moving, and now we're worried about what can make it stop. So four, four, four forecast rate increases next year, maybe, possibly. I was talking to a bond trader, and the bond trader said, you know, the Fed's going to do four rates, and they're going to break something again. Uh, that was a bond trader. When, when, you, when you look down the road 12 and 18 months, and you look at... Uh, 
where are the hot spots? Where do we need to make sure that we have our finger on the pulse? Where's the leverage in the system that could be a problem? You, you mentioned trade and tariffs. Mm -hmm. What else? What would be top two or top three? Um, so I think anytime you're talking about rates and the path on rates, you have to look at inflation, right? That's you know, the important part of our dual mandate is price stability. Mm -hmm. If you started to see inflation spike or you started to see inflation drop significantly, that would be a real conversation, I think, uh, pretty quickly. I then turn and I look hard at business investment. And the reason I look at business investment is it's a very good indicator of business confidence. We have underinvested as businesses in this economy for the last 10 or 15 years uh, versus what our historic trends were. And you could imagine some of the reasons why. Uh, the 08 downturn was quite sh shattering for most uh, businesses. Um, uh, people worried about regulation. People wondered what the future would look like. Over the last four or five quarters, though, we've seen very strong business investment. And if that continues, I think that's a great sign for, uh, for business confidence and therefore for the economy. I'll also say on trade and tariffs, it's not so much that the tariff conversation worries you on its own. What it does worry you is business confidence. And I talk to a lot of business contacts who say, you know, boy, if we're going to land it here, I know how I would redesign my supply chain. I just don't know if we're going to land it here or we're going to land it there. And so to the extent we could get resolution, frankly, one way or the other, I think businesses would be uh, more comfortable and that business investment would continue. So you, you think it's not so much about the clinical number of whatever that trade and tariff negotiation, yeah. but it's more about the confidence that we're going to stick with it and they know what it is? Right. Now, to be clear, sector by sector, it matters a lot. So if you're a, uh, a hog producer, right, and you see the 62% tariffs on pork exports, mm -hmm. it matters a ton to you. So I don't want to suggest it doesn't matter to everybody. For the overall economy, though, right, the many, many, many parts of the of our economy that aren't in the tariff conversation. What really matters is confidence. You know, are we going to give stability to investors, and I mean business investors, in terms of what the assumptions are going to be for the next, you know, three to five years so they can make their investments with confidence? Not to be insensitive to Hurricane Florence that came blowing through the Carolinas a couple of weeks ago, but is there a, is there a, a meaningful impact to the, uh, to the the business part of the Richmond's 5th District, specifically yeah. North and South, South Carolina? Could you argue that 22 or $25 billion of cost to repair is going to mean something? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I feel horribly for the people impacted you know, by the hurricane. Uh, my wife and I were in New Bern, um, gosh, in the middle of the summer and had dinner at a great uh, riverfront restaurant, Persimmons, that ended up getting, I think, quite damaged in the hurricane. So are there impact on businesses? There are absolutely impact on businesses. And I understand that millions of farm animals died as well. So there are impact on those businesses uh, as well. In terms of uh, the overall economy, most researchers say when a hurricane hits, it absolutely affects the economy in the near term. It actually, there's a rebound when you get all the construction and building efforts coming in the medium term. And the net will be what it'll be, but I think you'll see both the dip and then you'll see the, mm -hmm. the comeback. I do worry um, one second order effect is, you know, construction resources are very tight across the district. You see that in residential, you see that in commercial construction. I hear it everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. And so it is uh, going to be a further constraint on the limited construction resources we've got in our district. Do you think that'll be meaningful? It'll matter, and it'll certainly matter to those of us who are building yeah. places, but 
um, you know, over the long term, I would expect that to fall out as well. So I think there'll be an intermediate term impact for sure. Well, and the reason I say that, it's funny you bring that up. We had a casual conversation with uh, a congressional employee that funds disasters, particularly Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And one of the things, one of the concerns that she, that they brought up that they're watching closely is what they call disaster worker um, crisis or disaster worker employment. And that is, can they find people to rebuild these places mm -hmm. when you've got full plus plus employment already in yeah. construction? So, which brings me to commercial real estate and personal housing. Does it, is that, could that be a bubble? Well, we've heard from a lot of our contacts that they're worried about cap rates on the commercial real estate side. Of course, that's a market-by-market market issue, so that's not true in every market. But I think you do hear it in certain markets, and in particular as people have searched for yield. Um, one of the things I hope as we start to increase rates is we'll have yield alternatives for people that might lower some of the pressure on some of those uh, yield searching. On the construction side, it's a funny bubble. The way I'd put it is this. But you think it's a bubble? Uh, it's a funny circumstance, and then we'll decide okay. whether we want to call okay. it a bubble. Okay. Um, uh, construction resources are limited. It takes longer to build houses than it used to. Um, and coming out of the downturn, fewer houses were built. So now we're in a period of time where demand is up for residential mm -hmm. housing. Uh, millennials have settled down and decided they do want a house. And there was a whole generation or a whole period of time where people didn't do it. So demand for personal housing is up while um, the supply hasn't yet caught up and it's struggling to catch up for the reasons that we were talking about. So prices are escalating. I see that as I try to buy a place in Richmond. Prices are, prices are escalating and it's a supply demand thing, right? It, there's no particular reason why three years from now you shouldn't have a lot more supply on the market as people see the prices go up and, and build it. But you're definitely seeing prices escalate on residential housing. And as I've tried to push it, I don't think it's what we saw in 2006, right? It's not people who are flipping houses. It's not all of the financial instruments that we had the trouble with. It's basically not enough houses for sale in places where people want to buy them mm -hmm. compared to the demand. So we're going to have to invest in construction to do that. And I think then prices will rationalize. Does, does it, you spent three decades in Atlanta and you know that, yeah. that fed down there, but also that market very well. So Tom, do you see what, how how does that play out when it comes to affordable housing in some of the metros that that uh -huh. that scream that they can't even find housing for people that can't afford it, let alone can't afford it? Well, I think one of the fascinating things about this generation is rather than the suburban house thirty or forty or fifty uh, minutes out of downtown, they want to live in town, right? And you know, I could talk about Atlanta, but I'm sure it's the same uh, in Charlotte and other cities, which is massive building of multifamily residences uh, in town and a lot of young people flocking back uh, into the city. And so that's a great thing for them. It's also a great thing for the cities and the marketability of the cities in our district. That's the issue I see in Richmond as well. The challenge you run into is a lot of those inner city houses were the affordable houses. And, and so people are getting priced out of it. And one of the research efforts we've got underway is the question of what does the economy look like if you're a lower middle income person as opposed to an average income mm -hmm. person. You might see your health care costs increasing. You might see your housing prices increasing as you see gentrification in your markets. And so what we see on average as inflation uh, might not be the same in every uh, income segment in our district. And do that's the thing I'm very focused on. Do you expect that we're going to return to the wage inflation uh, or wages mm -hmm. rising as they've done historically? 
Do you expect that's going to come? So this is the mystery I, I talk to every contact about, and when we're done, maybe I'll ask how things work <laughs> in, in your business. But uh, we're seeing very, very tight labor markets, and uh, in particular in places like truck drivers or skilled mm -hmm. trades, nurses, uh, IT, uh, mechanics. You absolutely see very, very tight markets. Um, we see wage inflation, which three or four years ago was very weak, now firm. It's sort of high twos, 3% in terms of wage inflation, but we're not yet seeing it spike in the data. And so one of the questions I ask every contact I talk to is, you tell me you can't find workers, how much are you paying in increases year over year? And they say two and a half, three percent 3%. And I say, well, okay. I work with a lot of economists and they tell me that when employment markets are tight, then wages should go up. Why aren't they going up? And it's interesting to hear what they say. Some say, well, I can never collect it on the price. Right, so I can't I can't recoup it with my customers, oh, okay. and so they don't I have pricing power to, to exactly. Build that so I can't afford to increase wages, and those are the sectors that are starting to see constraints. That's where service is going down in restaurants. That's where yeah. bus drivers are, you right. know, being a little bit slower than they otherwise would in cities. The other thing um, you hear is, well, I'm I am paying up. I'm paying up for new people, but for my 90% that don't turn over every year. I'm not paying that much. And the reason there is they're not quitting at the same rate as they used to. And again, I think that um, employer employees who went through the downturn, um, and in, you put millennials in this remember mix that too, pain. they remember it. Yeah. If you've got a good job and someone offers you a couple thousand more, you might actually stay in the job you've got. Um, please come back and keep talking about this. We're completely out of time, but welcome to the district. Good to have oh, you here. Thank you, really enjoy being with you and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for watching. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by the Duke Endowment, Barings, Grant Thornton, the South Carolina Ports Authority, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina and by viewers like you. Thank you. Promotional consideration provided by Business North Carolina Magazine. For more information, visit carolinabusinessreview.com.